All right, everybody, welcome back to the Raynell Jones podcast. I'm really excited because we are in season two. Season one blew everybody's mind, and this season is probably going to inspire you more than anything. This summer, I wanted to connect with some local philanthropists, USY philanthropists, and also philanthropists from other countries as well. I'm really excited because season two is kicking off with Laura Dill. Laura Dill is in Ottawa, okay? Ottawa is based in, I I believe, Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, She's a wife, a mother of three, whose career took a quick shift from her, you know, I'm sorry, horticulture into coaching for caregivers. Oh my gosh, caregiving is a big thing to me. And everyone who's listened to my podcast knows that I'm a very big advocate for caregiving, okay? Uh, She walked through her in-life journey and triumphantly turned her story or tragedy. A lot of us experience tragedy, and I want you all to hear about how she turned her tragedy around after her parents, you know, at the same time was diagnosed with brain cancer, okay? She's the founder of the Canadian Registered Charity, as mentioned before, the Slay Society. Make sure you follow that on Instagram, the Slay Society. She's also an author of international best-selling book, daughter make sure you go by that (laughs) she's going to talk to us a little bit more you know about that she's also going to talk to us about the big g word okay i'm not sure if you all are familiar with the big g word okay the g word is gliobastroma okay and gliobastroma is also to refer refer to as astrocytoma it's a fast growing aggressive brain tumor it invades the nearby brain tissue but generally does not spread to distant organs however that may not be true because i'm not a doctor and things do change um it also evolves and it affects a lot of elderly uh, people gravely, you know, and with this and her experience in this and her starting her organization surrounding the big G word is a hard topic that we're going to discuss today. Um, and I just wanted to give Laura the floor at this point, just so she could talk to us about that big G word and how it's hard to hear that when you're dealing with grandparents, you're dealing with parents. And I just want to go ahead and introduce Laura. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thank you. That was the most high energy introduction I think I've ever had. Thank you for that. You're welcome, Laura. You're welcome, Laura. So tell us a little bit about your organization, about you, a little bit that I haven't shared. You can share that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. I, I don't even know where I would start, but so my organization called the Slay Society was born out of a need that I saw through my experience for more support around the actual caregivers. And I'll, I'll back up in the story to explain why, why I experienced that. But I love that you framed it as the big G word. It, <laughs> the big G word is, falls under the umbrella of the big C word, right, of cancer. Right. And like you right. mentioned, 
glee, it's glioblastoma. It is the weirdest, most frustrating name to say, glioblastoma. Um, and it is the same cancer that took John McCain. Now, are you like, as you pointed out, I'm Canadian, but for you Americans, same one that took John McCain and Bo Biden. Um, and I mean, Tom Parker more recently. Um, so that is the brain cancer that both of my parents were diagnosed with 14 days apart. So this is considered a rare terminal brain cancer, the most rare brain cancer, one of the most rare brain cancers. And my dad was diagnosed at the towards the end of the summer of 2019. And 14 days later on my birthday, my mom was diagnosed with the exact same cancer. And the way it all um, played out is that in that summer, my dad's cognitive abilities were declining. We noticed he was very, very forgetful. We thought he might be developing early stages of Alzheimer's. We had him tested for that in dementia. Everything was coming back as seeming to be totally fine. And then he was diagnosed with burnout, which is the most frustrating thing in the world to me. The doctor said, you're just overworked. He was 40 years up here in Canada in the government. He was very well respected, um, you know, very well known. He was a hard worker. And they said, you're just overworked and stressed. And we're diagnosing you with burnout. I mean, the guy was forgetting to put on pants. Like this is not a burnout type situation. So he was put on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. And he's never been known to have even a glimmer of either of those things. And so he, he goes through the summer with these medications and nothing is changing and he's declining and declining further until finally one day he had an episode that resulted in him going to emerge and his wife taking him to emerge. My parents were divorced, married to other people. They were divorced, married 20 years and divorced 20 years. And so he gets diagnosed with his brain tumor. We find out a few days later that it's an incurable form of brain cancer. We are told that we think, I was 37, I was almost 37, I was 36. My birthday was in two weeks. And I've just been told I might only have my dad for what I think is maybe 10 more years and not 20 or 25. And my brother and I were devastated. How would we go on, you know, without our anchor, the rock of our family? And when he went for his surgery, a few days after the diagnosis to remove the tumor, the, the surgeons came out and we said, you know, how did it go? And they said it was great. We got everything we wanted. And we said, great, how much time do we have left now? And we're expecting 10 years. And they said, maybe one. And we just dropped to the floor, all his wife, me, myself, and my brother are crying. We had no idea. We hadn't dared Google glioblastoma. Oh. We hadn't looked it up. So they said, maybe one good year. And one good year with this diagnosis is not a good year. It's it's six months of radiation and chemotherapy, six weeks of radiation followed by five months of chemotherapy. So it's a six month treatment. And within that one year, six of those months, you're, you're sick, you're weak, you're vomiting, you're sleeping, you're going through this very rigorous treatment. And so we knew now that this would be, you know, maybe our last, my birthday was coming up. This might be my last birthday with my dad. We might only have one more Christmas. And so as we prepared for that journey, I had three jobs at the time. I have three kids. And I said to my husband, I have to put everything on hold. And I want to just walk this journey with my dad. And I want to be there two or three days a week and help to take care of him. And I will put, I will close two of my businesses and put one of my businesses, um, you know, a bit on hold and do it part-time. 
And three days after my dad got out of the hospital from his recovery from surgery, now keep in mind it's brain surgery. Half of their brain is now removed. There's a lot of um, physical and cognitive deficits. So you become immediately a dependent, right? Whether it's mental or physical, they need help to walk. Maybe they're using a walker. Maybe they're straight to a wheelchair. They're certainly not driving a vehicle anymore. Um, and then potentially, you know, many, many other complications that can happen from brain surgery. And so on my birthday, three days after he got out of the hospital, we were eating ice cream cake. I said, my birthday wish is to just eat ice cream cake with my dad. I don't want any presents, nothing. And on, on my birthday, while my dad and I ate our ice cream cake, my mom had a seizure and fell to her kitchen floor and was rushed to emerge and diagnosed with the exact same brain cancer. And at that point, we knew, I know you guys who are listening probably can't see this, but she's making faces at me right now, like complete I'm shock. Oh, so, wow. I, I'm going to let you finish because this is breath, like it takes your breath away just hearing, picturing it like visibly in my head. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a nightmare. I mean, you know, we, we all experience nightmares like that in our life. That was certainly mine. Certainly the worst one I'd had to date. Um, hopefully, I am sure there's more lined up for me in this lifetime. Um, but that was definitely the hardest thing I'd ever had to face. And so to know, you know, on my birthday, <laughs> I almost, I wrote this book after, and I almost called it to Laura on her 37th birthday, like to Jillian on her 37th birthday. I don't know if you know that um, movie, Um, but it was on my 37th birthday that my mom had this seizure and my dad had been 14 days since his diagnosis. And so to find out within 14 days that you're going to lose both your parents within a year, um, was pretty awful. My mom had come and visit my dad at the hospital while we were there every day at the hospital, while he was in the hospital and she had come every day to visit us and to check in and and make sure my dad was okay. And that my brother and I were okay. And I'm sure as a mother, what must have been going through her head, you know, divorced or not, what must have been going through her head was how do I now show up for my children, albeit grown children, but still, how do I show up for my children now as both a mother and a father, they're going to lose their dad. And then, you know, days later, she's diagnosed with the same thing. And now for both of my parents to go through that and think we're going to leave our children at the same time must have been an awful, I can't, I, I wouldn't have words for it. They wouldn't have words for what that must have felt like for them. So um, needless to say, I just stopped all my jobs um, for a little bit and said, well, now I'm going to full-time care for my parents. My mom's husband at that time was battling a, a very serious alcohol addiction and was not able to care for her the way that she would have needed. So I moved her into our house. And she slept in my children's bedrooms. And they slept on our bedroom floor <laughs> for six weeks. Um, it was not the easiest situation, but it's what it felt like we had to do. We went with very little income. We had to go down to 50% of what, what we were used to living on, which was modest to begin with. And we lined up our pa- my parents with the same radiation doctor, same oncologist, all the same doctors, same care team. So that every day we would show up to radiation. They started radiation on the same day. It was five days a week for six weeks. And we would all arrive at the same time. And they would do their radiation together, like some big, weird, blended family reunion. And then we'd all go for lunch. 
And it was surreal. Be like, hey, dad, you're in. Okay, mom, now you're in. And then do it again the next day. And with that, juggling three kids, I did a, a lot of sports personally. And then I have very athletic, active kids, um, plus a husband who's a, an athlete as well. And juggling all that, and I know, and a brother, and being a wife, and being just trying to be a daughter, trying to just go back to being a daughter and put that first. It was hard and heavy for a very long time. Wow. I don't know if you all are just stopped in your steps or stopped in your car or what's going on. But Mm -hmm. if you just heard what I heard, I am literally stuck sitting here. It actually takes me back to a tough time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, 2020 to me made me more tougher than anything. I mean, I've experienced single motherhood. I've experienced homelessness. I've experienced a lot of things growing up in poverty. But what I experienced in 2020, despite COVID or anything happening in the world, I experienced losing my entire intermediate family. So when you said that to me and how you had to downsize and how you had to navigate and how you had to still be the mom, be the wife, be the sister, all of that I can relate to because I lost both my grandparents in 2020. Um, My great-grandmother was 91 um, and my grandfather was 78. And, you know, old age really got the best of my grandfather. You know, he was a veteran. He was an amazing man. And Mm -hmm. my grandmother, his wife, was taking care of both of her mother and him at the same time. Then my great-grandmother's going through dementia. She's at old age. You know, she's doing, you know, she can't really move around. So then my fiance and I, as well as my brothers, um, we tried our best to help take care of them. My brother then, you know, was incarcerated. So at the time, it was just me and my fiance because everyone lived out of town. And me trying to maintain a nonprofit, um, he's trying to maintain his business he's starting in. Um, we're trying to maintain homeschooling with the kids because of COVID. Oh, this is a lot. It, <laughs> it, a lot. Uh, I mean, if you all have mm-hmm. not experienced this, you know, it's a mental breaking point. Yes. Only absolutely. the strong survives these situations. And right. Laura, what you described was me. Like I had no downtime, literally waking up, making sure the kids are okay, being, you know, a, a spouse, you know, going riding down to my grandparents' house, getting them out the bed, making their food, making sure they're taken care of, making sure everything's done. That, and then moving and keep moving. We yeah. don't ever, if for you all who don't know, Laura, I don't know about you, but I never really stopped and thought like, wow, I'm doing all of this. I just did it. No, you just do it. And then you have people who say, how are you doing this? And I mean, this is so cliche to say, but you think like, what choice do I have? I don't know. At no point have I come up with a master plan. I'm just getting up every day and putting my feet on the floor and then seeing what happens next. And, and I had similar days where, you know, at at times, both my parents were in different hospitals at the same time. And I would get up in the morning. I would, and this is when I, you know, after my mom had been living here and had become chronically palliative and needed full-time round the clock medical care. 
And, but I never, I never took a day away from her. And, you know, I tried to never take a, a day away from my dad. And I would get up in the morning and I'd get all three kids' lunches made. And, and my husband had to work extra at that time because I wasn't working. So he would get up and leave for work early. I would do all the things for the kids. I would drive them to school, drop them off at the door, see them off at the gate, turn around and, and head. I would grab a coffee. Every morning I'd get myself a coffee. You know, I married a financial planner. So this guy was like, stop buying the damn coffee. We don't have the damn money and you're not working. That was my only thing. That was my me thing that I could control. Like Laura, listen, and even with what you are listening, who have spouses and significant others, when you go through these times, you and your spouse will look back now and be like, literally, <laughs> we argued about the dumbest stuff. We uh, yes. arguing about coffee and it's not, you know, it's not that we had hateful arguments. It was stupid, petty arguments because we're going through so much and oh, yeah. it's not that we're taking it out on each other. Sometimes we will have to pause and be like, all right, we know that we're trying to do the best we could. So I didn't mean what I said earlier. I didn't mean like, yeah, did you experienced that with your spouse because I, I definitely experienced that and it was so stupid arguments. Well, yeah, because there's sort of your, like, there's sort of your soft place to fall. Right. And when you are trying to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and not just for you, but for your kids, for your mom and your dad, for your brother, and you're trying to be the hero to everybody in your world, except for them, then you can come home and fall apart on them and know that you're still going to be loved, accepted. It's safe, but Holy cow, that was a rough two years for us of just, I love you, but I felt, I say this about motherhood in general. Sometimes it kind of feels like you just want to high five them and be like, see you on the flip side. Like I'll see you at the end of this, you know, cause yeah, it was very trying on our marriage, very trying. And he is a rock. He was a rock from day one. Actually, that's not true. He had a mental breakdown at one point during all of this with the fear that I had the same glioblastoma. There was a very real fear that I would have the same thing if both of my parents' uh, brain tumors were believed to be environmentally caused. Um, the, the answer to that is that I, I didn't. At the time, I had an MRI, it was clear. But for a long time, he thought, great, this is what I'm going to have to do with my wife. My wife is going to die of this. And this is what it'll look like. He was watching it unfold right in front of his eyes with his two in-laws, thinking that I'd be next. And then my brother, and he'd be left with three kids and no lineage above that to help him. And, so it was very scary for him, but yes, we fought about the most ridiculous things because the most ridiculous things for people like me and you who are in the ring fighting for the people who are sick, everything is a trigger. Everything. I walked into a Starbucks one day and I stood there looking at the menu and I got to the, and I thought I'm going to treat myself. My everyday coffee was self-care, by the way, that was my self-care. But I went to order the Starbucks and the barista said, what can you, what, what would you like? And I burst into tears and I felt like, I don't know, I can't make a decision at a time like this about something that's so big. Like I couldn't even decide to get a coffee. So if I came home and he was, you know, left his God help him, his dishes on the counter and not in the dishwasher, I was losing my mind. Uh, and that's a fact. That was me too. It was always something, but I didn't yeah. know what the something was going to be that day. But right. you know how I navigated through it. And to be honest with you all listening, it's not like we're giving you tips on how to navigate. Okay. 
what we're basically saying is it's okay to fold in the mist and then come back from it. The struggle yeah. to me is how you work through it and how you come back from it. And what we did was I, I just worked through it. And a lot of happiness came out of it, even though it's a sad part a lot of happiness came out of it. You know, a lot of things grew from that. You know, mm-hmm. our nonprofit grew through different states. You know, our, our, our kids grew up and saw and had memories of their grandparents and saw how strong mommy was and always inspired to be just like mom yeah. and dad and following our footsteps. And, you know, our businesses grew and just happy things have happened from that. And with you, what was the big, happiness that happened from everything you went through from minimizing you know your income downgrading taking care of the kids and trying to recover from removing your mother from that room moving your children back into that room you know how Mm -hmm. what was the happiness that came out all of that you know surprisingly or not surprisingly there was a lot there was actually a lot and uh but I there was the obvious things like I really learned and like what I value and what I don't more. So I think I learned that I don't value the things I used to. And I really value the things I kind of always overlooked. And those are obvious things like time (laughs) that we sort of forget. We don't have on our side, you know, and when my parents were diagnosed or, or handed this one year prognosis, this one year kind of life sentence, I thought, well, how it's going to sound really controversial to maybe some people listening, but I thought how amazing that, and this is how I I tried to reframe it for them. You get to now live with intention. You're not floating through every day with no purpose, with no plan, with no goals, with nothing. You get to pick the things you want to make sure you do. You, you know, we didn't get that one last trip. We didn't get that one last blowout party. But, oh man, we got moments. We got eye contact. We got my dad looking at me and just saying, thank you for being who you are. And I got an opportunity to write a letter to each of my parents, which funny enough, I did when I was about 22 and had no money and didn't know what to buy them for Christmas. I thought I'm going to write them a letter for Christmas because that's free. And I'm going to tell them like, what a beautiful gift would it be to know as a parent what gifts you've given to your children, what, why you're a great mom or dad, what amazing qualities you have that your child looks up to you for. So I did that for them when I was younger, but I did it again. Um, and while they were both quite literally on their deathbeds, I'll say I was able to read them these letters. It wasn't pretty. I was like sobbing and blubbering all over them and probably snotting everywhere. But I put that um, time and energy into doing that because I felt like, you know, and for you with your grandparents, wasn't it the highest honor to be able to go and get them out of bed every day? And yeah. wouldn't, right. And wouldn't they think, look at this granddaughter we raised and how strong she is. And she's showing up and she's not turning her back. And this, it, I'm sure this was hard for you every time. I didn't want to change my mom's diapers. Every I didn't want to see. Yeah. Yeah, no, my grandfather would be like, I don't want you looking at me. And then it came to the point where he was like, I have no choice. So yes. for, for me, seeing him like that, really, I think that's what put like, I don't know how to put it, like how I'm pushing on my chest. It put like something is set on me when you're like, right. 
wow, like I have to do this for you, dad, and you used to do this for me. Like, you know, yeah. the yeah. roles are reversed. And like you said, it, it makes you pour into your children more, pour into your family more. Like I've learned that traveling with my kids is the biggest flex for me. The biggest thing uh-huh. that I can do and create in those memories, because those are memories that you will never get back. And time is not on our side. We don't know what tomorrow promises. And I think that's the biggest, happiest moment for me is that I can do things that make my children smile and have, you know, while I'm here, enjoy those yeah. moments. Because our parents did that with us. Like my, like my grandparents did that with us a lot. Every time we traveled and I, my first time on my first amusement park big ride was with my grandfather you know and he yeah. always had to take me on the rides because I was always the smallest I'm only four nine if those of you do not know I'm extremely <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> he will always have to take me on the rides and you know he always expressed to me to take care of your body take care of yourself and I really dove into myself more like you know I dove into myself more I remember I was around that time I was probably like a hundred and 90 pounds like since then like I dove into my health like you know I'm I'm now 120 pounds like I lost yeah. so much wow. weight. I got so much more into my physicality and taking care of myself it really makes you mm-hmm. that more into you and that way your kids you know duplicate that and speaking of that and just just all of this in this in, in this tragedy we have to really take time out for ourselves and one thing I did was when I lost weight, I really felt the most happiness and comfortability within myself and being able to move around and be athletic with my kids who are yeah. one's a gymnast, one's a cheerleader, you know, like <laughs> those is the part, those are the perks. And you posted this picture and it wasn't like you were trying to be sexy, but you definitely <laughs> looked hot. She had on like this white gown and it was on a beach (laughs) and it's like, she was so curvy and like her post made a mention about like just embellishing your curves and being like, you know, sexy, but not on purpose. And (laughs) ladies, if you're listening to this, do that. Okay. Even if you feel like, oh, it's a bit much, even if you don't feel like, you know, I don't have the right bot type everyone to me every woman in my eyes is is perfect so what advice can you give for women like in that moment like what were you thinking like when you saw that photo of yourself like what was your like "Mm, that's me (laughs) no you know what okay I'm glad you brought this up because yeah first off do the things that scare you and if you think well my I have a flat butt or I have too much extra tummy fat from having carried around babies or my boobs are sagging to the floor from breastfeeding like I get it I am a mom I can completely relate but I I'm big on just doing something new and uncomfortable to say that you did it and so when this photographer had posted saying I'm looking for like, you know, a guinea pig basically to try out this photo shoot. And I want to showcase real moms show up as a real mom. And I thought, well, I have a real mom body and I, you know, arguably I have a pretty decent uh, fitness level, Um, but I have the extra, you know, (laughs) I can't feel as as great. The little flap at the bottom, like a little couch I get rid of. Yeah, that's exactly. And my, I have had a big booty all my life. And I've been small on top all my life, right? High five to us. And I thought I'm going to do it because I want to be reminded of how sexy I am in just my body and the skin I'm in. 
And the sad thing, but the reality is I'll look at that picture in 10 years and I'll think, holy crap, I looked good. But of course, what did I think when I saw that? I thought, wow, my butt really is big. Holy cow, I wish I'd sucked my belly in more. That's what I thought. I looked at the little pouchy part of my tummy in that white dress. I wondered if I should have taken off that damn strapless bra because it made me look too cone boob. Like I, I picked it apart. I right. picked it apart. Why? Why do we do that to ourselves? That was the saddest thing when really I've, I wanted to feel like, and I kind of do in um, now, like a few days after, you know, processing that image of myself, I feel like great about it now, but why did I pick myself apart so much in that moment of looking at that photo? You know, I've had right. three kids. My body's done amazing things for me. It's incredibly, I'm 39. I'm going to be 40 this year. I'm a lifelong hockey player. I still play hockey. I'm a soccer player. I was a track athlete. Like I am a healthy fit person who grew up with a butt bigger than most white girls' butts. And that got picked on all the time. And here I'm trying to embrace it. And I'm still looking at my own photo being like, oh no, it didn't look that great. Hey, listen, women are getting surgeries now to have the butts that we have. So it's like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> let me tell you, we like, I've always had a huge butt and no top. So it's yeah. always like, now the things that people would make fun of back then, now it's like, that's what's in, that's hot. Oh my gosh. But you know. Well, yeah. And isn't that just kind of the point? Who gets to decide that? Like what really all bodies are hot. Mm-hmm. All bodies are hot, especially these female ones that are capable of so many incredible and miraculous things, right? And I, I don't want my daughter. I posted your last year about my daughter who was 10 at the time. And it, it kind of blew up my Instagram at, at, in that moment for what I had as a small following. She came down the stairs and her leg, she was in little shorts. She's tall. She's lean. She's athletic. And she was scratching her leg. She's a gymnast like yours. And she was scratching at her legs. And she said, my legs are really itchy. And she said, they're itchy because I put soap on them. And I was like, why would you put soap on your legs and not wash it off? And she said, I put like hand soap. I pumped hand soap and I put it on my legs to smooth down the hair because everyone at school is making fun of me because I have hairy legs. This is a 10 year old child. So where in society did we go wrong that we gave her the narrative that she has to have smooth legs or it's not acceptable? Partly me, maybe partly me, right? Because I'm like, oh, I'm not gonna swim today at your friend's pool, guys. I didn't shave my legs, right? I would say things like that. And then in their heads, my two little girls, they have little two girls and a little boy. They're like, oh, okay. So not okay for mom to have body hair. Ew, gross, unacceptable. So it really kind of opened my eyes to like what we're creating with society, both in our own body image and in our children's body image. Right. And, and that's the big thing, moms, if you're listening, just be very cognizant about how you talk about yourself in front of your children on how you view yourself in front of your children, because they duplicate that. And they think like, oh my gosh, if mom think that's not okay, then it's not okay for me. And we, we don't want to put that out there, but sometimes we don't mean to, you know, sometimes we say it forgetting and it's okay. We make mom mistakes. Who doesn't make them? You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's parenting. Hey, I yeah. learned from that. No, not to do it again. One We're of real humans, right? We're just real people. Right. And that's part of, you know, raising daughters and having that, you know, whole thing of you're going to have hiccups, but you're also educating your children along the way. And you have a book out called Daughter that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Everyone about daughter, where they can get daughter, what's in daughter, give them just a little bit. 
so they can read daughter and understand daughter and what it is to be a daughter and be Laura Dill as a daughter. Yeah. So who knew I could write a book? I mean, I was diagnosed in, you know, grade eight when I was 13 with a reading disability and um, told I, I had mild dyslexia and I struggled through English actually in school. Yeah. I know. And um, I kind of thought, well, I'm destined to be an athlete. And this wasn't a bad thing, but this was sort of my, well, I'm going to do something physical with my body because that's where my skills and my talents lie. It's amazing what you learn about how many more skills and talents you possess as you grow, you know, than you are pigeonholed into as a child. Um, and so sure enough, I started to blog when my parents got sick, sick. I, I always had been blogging about motherhood, not, not in a true blog, but in the social media sense very transparent and talking about motherhood and from a very um, comedic kind of way with a lot of humor. My dad instilled that in me, we turn everything into a joke. We can poke fun at ourselves. And my dad um, at, around, you know, before he got sick, he wrote a book. He decided he wanted to be a writer, he took a course and he got really passionate about writing. And this was st never still on my radar. But then when he got sick, I started to just sort of blog post our journey um, on social media and more and more people started with the motherhood stuff and then transitioned into this medical kind of, you know, true transparent, um, view of what I was experiencing and going through and how flawed the medical system is and how COVID, because my parents did pass away in 2020 during the first and second wave of COVID and how, how much havoc that wreaked on our journey. And, as, and for me as a caregiver, and people started to reach out and say, you really need to write more. Like you really can write. And I had no idea, but I emote, I write with a lot of emotion <laughs> and it became an outlet for me. I mean, that and my stupid morning coffee, those were like the two things I had going for me and hockey. And I mean, without those three things, I'd probably be a different person, but I, I just started writing and I thought I'm going to compile all this someday. I'm going to compile it all into a book. When I just, after my parents passed away, I thought I have to, actually, this is actually a very cool thing. When my dad was at the end of his life and in the hospital, he, he didn't really, we didn't know he was at the end of his journey at that point. We thought he'd be coming home. And he said, you know, when I get out of here, Laura, we're going to write a book together. I'm so proud of you for your writing. I had just still been kind of sharing my writing on social media. I said, I'm so proud of you. We are going to write a book together. I'll get emotional talking about this, but and um, he had these ideas for this book. And he said, you know, you're going to write your story and I'm going to help. And he passed away two months later. He never got out of the hospital. And, uh, you know, a year after that, I said, okay, I'm officially starting. So February of 2021, I started to write my book. And I joined this program that would help me to kind of edit it and put it all together. But it's my writing. It's my words. None of it was changed. Um, it was such an incredible process and the book launched in the summer of 2021. And when I made my sort of, you know, final um, word that I wrote down in my book, I started to cry and I was like, we did it, dad. We wrote this book. And so I, he really did co-write this book with me just from a different plane. <laughs> um, and so it's been amazing. It, it started out just to be a memoir and it turned into not just a memoir, but a sort of eight step um, you know, guide, like survival guide for caregivers. And it's not about self-care for caregivers. It's about doing the most tactile, tangible things in your day to make sure you don't fall apart. Drink the damn water, wear the proper frigging clothes to show up for your, your loved one, how to advocate, how to educate yourself, how to, how to show up in the hard times, how to write the letters and read them, how to dig deep. 
Um, and it kind of takes you from that very moment of hearing the diagnosis all the way through to the end and how to say goodbye with no regrets. And I wish I'd had it when I was going through it. And I just said to you earlier, you know, you kind of just get up every day and you do it and you put one foot in front of the other. But when I started to write the book and go back and think, how did I do that? I was able to kind of pinpoint these steps in my journey that I got to of making sure I didn't fall apart. That's what it's about. Like loving someone till the end of their life without you falling apart and doing it with no regrets. Wow. I honestly, and it's like the men that's in our lives have the most impact because my grandfather mm -hmm. told me that if you can read, you could do anything. Oh, I love that. And, and um, before he passed away, um, I was recognized um, by Ellen DeGeneres. Um, I also was recognized at the Essence Festival for uh, philanthropy and also being an essential hero. And what? Yes. And I have to do more Googling on you. <laughs> yes. And yep, all you have to do is Google Raynell Jones. Everything I'm, I'm, <laughs> so amazing. Because you know, we hadn't met. We hadn't met until today for anyone who's listening. So this is such a great opportunity and I'm so excited. Yes. And okay, so I'm going to look, look this all up. He was so proud of me. And this was right before he passed. He was so proud of me. And he said, you know, you're going to do great things. And that always stuck to me. That's why I said, oh my gosh, me and Laura can relate on so many levels that is so crazy yeah. that like, you know, I know a lot of women can relate on the same level as us. And this is the purpose of the podcast is just for you all to relate to women just like us and talking about this big G word and talking about her book. And Laura, where can people buy your book? Yeah, sorry. I didn't even mention that when you asked me on Amazon, it's available. I mean, I obviously have in-person copies, but unless you're trekking up to Canada to get it, um, it's available on Amazon. Wow. Amazon. Yeah. So that is super amazing. And I was actually thinking about visiting Canada this weekend. Please do that. <laughs> yeah. Niagara Falls. I want to visit Niagara Falls, um, but I have to see like what their COVID regulations are for Niagara. Yeah, um, they're pretty open right now. Yeah, that was the biggest thing. I didn't know like what they required and things like that. But I definitely was thinking about because you're only three hours and like four hours for me. Like literally, I'm in Pittsburgh, PA. So you don't have to have oh, okay. Right. Like I'm East Coast. So I'm yeah. just like, guys, get the book off Amazon. Like I <laughs> literally, like I'm literally sitting here like I should just ride to Laura and get this book because like <laughs> I need the book like I <laughs> want to read the book so you guys gotta get the book it's on Amazon Girl, I'll send you a copy of the book yes <laughs> you don't like, need to it. not only that yeah. if you need some encouragement um and inspiration you guys I want you to follow her on Instagram please follow Laura Deal and the Slay Society you know this is something that can help you pull through she posts so many encouraging posts so many tips and tools for caregivers. Caregiving is like one big thing that's near dear to her heart. And I want everybody to really follow her if you need that inspiration. And if you're going through the same things, not only follow her, but please share Slay Society and encourage people to donate. Please, please, please donate and support and let people know about the organization. It's really, really good for women and families who just need that pick me up and 
inspiration and Laura is there anything you want to leave anybody with today like any tips you want to say or anything you have coming up for Slay Society or in the future well I do want to just give a quick idea of what we do with the Slay Society because I didn't even talk about that but the, the whole reason I started this charity was my dad was big on giving back. And I, I felt our story was so rare um, and so bizarre that it, it garnered attention in our community and people showed up for us in the biggest way. I felt like this may have, may as well have been like the 1920s. We had a, a meal train. There was food left at our door for months and months. I don't think we bought groceries for six months. I don't think we paid for gas in our car for a year that we would have strangers leaving stuff at the door every day that I got home. And whether I came home to an anonymous $500 gas gift card or one $5 Tim Hortons gift card, it didn't matter. It meant all the same to me. And it would bring me to my knees to feel like I was, so I have goosebumps saying this, to feel like I was supported, I was seen and that I'd be okay. And my dad made a comment in the beginning of um, his diagnosis and my mom's diagnosis. And he said, as long as there are good people in the world, still the world will be okay. And that always kind of carried me through that I was getting that support. But one day it occurred to me that I was getting that support because I was posting about it and blogging it on social media. But what if you didn't? What if you weren't that person that was comfortable doing that? Who was going to help you? How does anyone know you need help if you don't stand up and say, hey, I need help? And so I started something to raise money for the caregivers of glioblastoma patients so that they could have more time. They could not worry about where the gas money would come from or the grocery money would come from. We would provide that money. Maybe that would give them more time off work. Maybe that would give them more moments with their dad who was palliative, you know, chances to read him their letters or have him make eye contact and say, I'm proud of you. Maybe I was going to give that to people. And so that's what the Slay Society is. We cover costs, the expenses associated with caregiving for these caregivers. So that's, that's what that's about. We only work on fundraisers and donations. My, um, my training in life, my education is actually in horticulture, like you mentioned at the beginning. So we run a big uh, fundraiser every year called Plantopia, and it's a huge plant sale. I do most of my work like through horticulture to raise money um, but we we are always needing to be funded by donations to keep this going at the pace that we are trying to get it going. Wow. So you guys heard her. Make sure you donate and make sure you support. I really enjoyed this conversation, Laura. And I know Me for too. sure that you've impacted so many moms. And thank <laughs> you all for tuning into the Raynell Jones podcast season two make sure you tune into our next episode this is amazing and follow laura deal and the slay society have a good day y'all thank you bye